Uh, Father, I thank you that you are trustworthy and you've proven yourself faithful time and time again. Uh, Lord, as we open your word together, I ask that you would use these moments to, to make us more like Christ, that you would use these moments to awaken us to the things in our own hearts, our own lives that we may be overlooking. Uh, Lord, I, I ask that today we would do all things to make much of Christ and to bring you glory. We need your Spirit's power to do that. And so we're going to lean on him and we're going to trust you for it. It's in Jesus' good and precious name I pray. Amen. Amen. You can grab a seat. Good morning to you. All right. John 19 is where we're going to be. So why don't you, you can grab your Bibles and jump to John 19. If you don't have a Bible, I'm going to encourage you to, to go ahead out into the, just outside those doors. Make sure you come back. Don't just leave. But just outside those doors, there's some hard back Bibles for you. You can grab those and, and bring those in. Uh, quite the weather week we've had. Totally messed with my hair. Um, <laughs> My kids make like, Dad, don't you know any other jokes besides bald jokes? No. And if it ain't broke, don't fix it. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, so this morning, um, I'm going to confess right up front of the seven sayings of Jesus. This one had me stumped. Um, the other ones are pretty obvious. I wasn't sure if they're in front of you. We're going to get there. Um, the other ones are pretty obvious and, and, and I think pretty easy to apply into the gospel and gospel living and what, what the gospel explanation is. And this one, yeah, this one, um, <laughs> this one was tough. Um, it is funny to me. So, so, and you'll hear about this interspersed throughout the message and actually over the next days and weeks probably. Um, we had the opportunity as a, a staff team and elders and pastors to go on our annual retreat in the past few days. Um, it was an amazing, incredible time. Um, in that time, we prayed a lot. We shared a lot. We planned a lot. Uh, Pastor Mark and I were making jokes. Every year we plan a retreat, and every year something breaks and doesn't work, and it ends up way better for all of us than we could have ever planned. And that happened again this year, and it was wonderful. But and during one of our times of prayer, for, for one of our, our Union Town's own, um, there were some big things happening while we were away, and being so far away, it's difficult for us to just show up at the door or show up in the hospital. Um, one of our own has been really kind of going through it the past, well, actually the past couple of months, but in particular this last week um, with an unexpected surgery as well. And so as we were gathering as a staff and elder team to pray for her and her husband, it was in that moment that the aha thing happened. And so I praise God that um, I praise God that He let me not figure it out until that moment. I ask God that He doesn't do that anymore. So we'll see uh, if I can actually communicate what it is that I think that this passage has for us today. I, I'm actually going to read a significant chunk of of text to kind of lay the, the context of where this statement, this saying of Jesus comes. I mean, we all know he's on the cross. We all know he's being crucified. But, but I, I don't want to just assume that. I mean, the gospel authors wrote these things intentionally and on purpose. And so I want to read this as it leads up. So we're going to start in verse 1 of John 19. And my intention is to read all the way up through verse 27 before we, we jump in together. So follow along with me. For, for some of us, it's, uh, I know that some of us are audible learners, so for, for some of us, maybe it's better that you just sit quietly and, and close your eyes and picture it. 
Um, whatever's best for you to be able to grasp the, the moment that John is describing to us here in John 19. So John 19, starting in verse 1, it says this, Then Pilate, he took Jesus and he had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and they put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and they went up to him again and again saying, Oh, hail, King of the Jews! They slapped him in the face. And once more, Pilate came out and he said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. And when Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here's the man. And as soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, no, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he has claimed to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was, he was even more afraid. He went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said. Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. See, anybody who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. And when Pilate heard this, he, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover, and it was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they, they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Well, should I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. And finally, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him. And with him, two others, one on each side with Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate saying, don't write the king of the Jews, but, but say instead this man claimed to be king of the Jews. And Pilate's response was, what I've written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and they divided them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. And this happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, 
They divided my clothes among them, and they cast lots for my garment. This is what the soldiers did. And near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And Jesus saw his mother there, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby. He said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, he said, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Context of that saying of Jesus on the cross, woman, here's your son, here is your mother. The context that surrounds that head-scratching saying is the context of crucifixion. The environment, the surroundings, the noises of soldiers affixing men to a cross and lifting them up to suffocate to death. And while that is occurring, those very soldiers standing at the very foot of the cross of men who are taking their last gasps, gambling for their clothing. You see the picture of them dividing the clothes of Jesus himself into four different parts, saying that there's, we know there's four soldiers now because they, they took share in it. So each one got a different piece of, of Jesus' clothing, probably a headpiece, um, sandals, an outer robe, maybe a belt. But when they were done with that, there was one remaining garment. It's his, his tunic. His, the, the NIV calls it his, his undergarment. It would be the, the garment that, that was next to his skin that he wore. And when they looked at it, it is one solid piece. And instead of continuing to share the spoils of war, instead of cutting it into four pieces and distributing it, they decided, no, 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 let's keep this one whole. Instead, anybody got some dice? The modern equivalent of casting lots would be they would cast dice. The winner gets this piece of clothing. Um, just a point, because it's not just a throwaway point. This was done to fulfill prophecy, we're told. And the prophecy comes from Psalm twenty-two, eighteen: They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. See, what happened in this moment is one of nearly, more than 20 Old Testament prophecies that were fulfilled within a 24-hour time period, pointing to the fact that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God. What, what it stands out to me is the fact that here are these soldiers with death occurring right next to them, gasps occurring right next to them, cries occurring right there. And they're completely unaffected. They're so used to crucifixion. They're so used to seeing men die before their very eyes that they have no concern whatsoever. Instead, they engage in a game. But there's a transition that is stark and extreme that occurs in verse 24 and 25. 
Verse 24 ends after the description said, this is what the soldiers did. And verse 25, our eyes are drawn away from the soldiers and instead to the foot of the cross where Jesus' mother stands. So while the soldiers were probably unaffected and seemingly unaffected by the very crucifixion and the death that was occurring next to them as they gambled for somebody's clothes, the, the, the contrast is there stands Mary, who was much more affected than soldiers were. And, and I, I don't know. This is, this is and, and I will admit this up front, but I can't imagine Mary standing at the foot of the cross while Jesus, her son, is being crucified. I can't imagine that as she stands there that, that the memories aren't running through her head. Put yourself, moms, in Mary's place. I think it would be safe to assume that as Mary stood there, she, she remembered the words of the angel who appeared to her and said, Greetings, O highly favored one. The Lord's with you. The Holy Spirit is going to come upon you with the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and the, and the Holy One will be born to you, and He is the Son of God. I'm, I'm sure that those words were running through her head. I'm sure her response saying, I'm the servant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. I'm sure those words ran through her head as she stood at the foot of the cross of her son Jesus. I'm sure the memories of the trip on, well, I was about to say on donkey, but we don't know that for a fact. It, it could have been on the back of a sheep, I don't know, to Bethlehem while she was great with child. And getting to Bethlehem and the, the whole inn incident and then finding the, the, the trough and, and the manger and laying her firstborn in, in a feeding trough in this, this manger and, and all of these people showing up, right? The shepherds, the wise men. Shortly after the birth of Jesus, I'm sure she remembers Joseph waking her up in the middle of the night saying, I had a dream and God is speaking to me. We need to leave. We need to get to Egypt now. She stands at the foot of the cross looking at her son Jesus. I am certain the memory of going to Jerusalem to, to dedicate Jesus, as was the custom, walking into the temple, seeing a man whose name is Simeon, a man who was well up in age, but had been promised that before he died, he would lay eyes on the Messiah, the Son of God. And as Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus, probably youngster Jesus, walk into the temple in that moment, Simeon takes the Jesus in his arms and he says, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. My eyes have now seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all the nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. So as, imagine that as a mom for a second. You walk in and this older gentleman's like, can, can, I, can I see the baby? I mean, it is a Lion King moment in Bible. Oh! But in this moment, Simeon's like, this is him! This is the one we've been waiting for. This is the one who's going to come and redeem Israel. And Mary and Joseph, it actually says immediately after that, the child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. They were probably standing there like, what is this guy doing? Can we have the baby back, please? And Simeon looks at Mary and Joseph and says this, Luke chapter 2, verse 34. Then and Simeon says to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel 
and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. I'm sure Mary thought of these next words that Simeon said as he looked at her in the eyes. A sword will pierce your own soul too. Maybe her her mind ran to the, the wedding that she and Jesus went to and the rest of the disciples got invited as well. And as they're sitting at the the wedding, the whispers begin around the room. They're out of wine. I mean, that's unthinkable. Weddings are bad. You need wine. Sorry, that was for you. Probably should have thought of that one first when I said that. It was like, I really mean it though. I mean, (laughs) what are we going to do? And and the whispers come and it's very interesting to me that, that, that Mary leans over to Jesus in that and says, Jesus, they're out of wine. And you can almost, and I'm reading into it, I know I will admit that, but you almost sense Jesus' response is, Mom, Mom, it's not time yet. And you know what Mary's response is? Hey, servants, come here, come here, come here. You just do whatever Jesus says. If you get teenage in your head. I want you to go get water. Fill six jars with water. And there the servants go and they fill the jars with water and the master of the, the, the bridal ceremony dips into the jars and drinks it and is astonished and he runs to the, to the groom and says, man, this is a different thinking. Usually at weddings what you do is you give everybody the best wine first. Then as the reception goes on and they're not really tasting the wine anymore, you give them the cheap stuff. Here we are at the end of the wedding, and you are giving the best wine I've ever tasted. And there Mary sits. We, we don't know. We, what we do know is that little boy who she taught to walk, who she cradled in her arms, tried to get to sleep at night, She's standing at the foot of his cross looking at him and no more can she remove the pain. She's standing there at the foot of the cross. This this occurred to me. She's standing at the foot of the cross and she is hearing every insult being hurled at her son. I'm guessing that if that happened to any of us, moms, that you're sitting in the stands at a basketball game and someone behind you not knowing it's your son who just committed the foolish foul and begins to call him names. I am guessing, moms, that mama bear may show up. Hmm. There's Mary hearing every single insult. She sees them gambling for his clothing. She can't do anything about it. This moment for Mary is real. Please don't lose sight of that. Another standing at the the foot of the cross there is is, is in in the way that John describes himself. He calls himself as the, the, the... the disciple who Jesus loved. 
That's John himself. And there John stands at the foot of the cross, which is kind of a, a remarkable moment, isn't it? You fast forward just about a day or so, and, and you, for me, I always think it's Peter. It's always Peter. Peter's the brash one. Peter's the one that speaks before he thinks. Peter's the one that has this happen. Peter's the one that screws up. Peter's, but, but as Peter stood before Jesus and said, listen, even if I must die with you, Jesus, I will not deny you. What I forget is Matthew 26, 35. As soon as Peter finishes saying that, the comment goes, even Peter, here, let me, let me read 26, 35 to you. Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Fast forward only 20 verses, you get to Matthew chapter 26, verse 56. When Jesus is arrested, it says this, then all of the disciples deserted him and fled. And here, John returns. John stands at the foot of the cross. What is running through his mind as he looks at Jesus hanging there? I mean, he's got to be playing some tape as well. I'm sure this isn't what he was, was thinking was going to happen. I'm sure this wasn't what he saw uh, the, the end result being. I, I'm sure that just a week before when, when they're walking into the city and people are laying their coats down before Jesus and, and shouting out Hosanna over and over again, I'm sure that he thought this was going to end differently. I'm sure his mind raced back to the fact that when they were in the garden and Judas showed up and the soldiers showed up and they, they carried Jesus away, that as he was running away, probably in tears, what in the world just happened? Standing at the foot of the cross, looking at Jesus on the cross, this is clearly not what he expected. Did he look at Jesus as a failure? I mean, was he standing there thinking, I'm afraid of what happens next? I mean, there's no question he's filled with a, a sense of loss, and yet there he stands experiencing all of this in all of its brutality. So just as real as it was for Mary, it is for John. And you look to the cross, and there Jesus hangs, struggling for breath. Bearing the, the sin of the world, the, the full cup of God's wrath for sinners being poured out on him. There he hangs on the cross. And we, we, we know, we, we're, we're good Christians. We go to church a lot. We've read this story before. It's Easter time. It's Lent season. We're leading up to these, this, this Good Friday stuff and this Easter stuff. We know what happened. We know that Jesus is on the cross bearing that sin. We know that he's fulfilling that, that final sacrifice that has been prophesied for hundreds, even thousands of years in that moment. And yet in that moment, he finds it in himself important enough to use a significant energy in his final moments one of his last breaths to speak these words, mom, here's your son, this is now your mom. Why? The answer is to put things in order. Here's the difficult part. What things? He had no things. Everything he owned was just gambled for right in front of him. Well, what he did have a responsibility for was his mom. As the oldest child 
It is your legal responsibility in this culture to provide for your widowed mom. And, and, and there's some discussion if Mary is actually widowed. However, as you read through the gospel accounts and through some historians, you find no mention of his, we'll call him his stepfather, Joseph. <laughs> we don't hear anything about Joseph for almost 20 years. So it seems as if Mary is now a, a, a widowed mom. And she's probably 40, 45 years old, which today, man, that's like a teenager. You like how I did that? All right, that's what make sure. I've offended mightily in that area before, so I wanted to try to redeem myself. <laughs> She's 40, 45 years old. At that time, that's not young. And as he says this in front of witnesses, in that culture, this is now a binding action, a legally binding action. Mom, this is now your son. This is your mom. Right there, he hands over his, his only and his most loved possession to John. And th- th- think about that for a moment, to John. Remember the guy who ran away? I mean, he doesn't launch into any sarcasm. He doesn't launch into any judgment towards this guy who abandoned him just a, a couple hours earlier. He just simply tasks John to take care of her. And from that moment, John took her in. So what in the world is the point of all that? Good question. I wrestled with, is, if this, is this just a historical moment to kind of make sure we remember the humanity of Jesus in that moment? Is this, uh, or is there actually something in there for us to, to do? Is there something for us to know? And, and I think that the answer is yes, there is something for us to do, and there is something for us to know. And, and here, I'm going to give you two things that I believe we must be careful to be doing as a result of what Jesus said on the cross, and then there's one thing that I want every single one of us walking out of here knowing. The first responsibility that you and I have as a result of Jesus saying this from the cross is this, care for yours. Let me explain what I mean by that. Here in this moment, Jesus takes great care to make sure his mom is provided for after he is gone. You want practical, pragmatic application? Here it comes. Do you have life insurance? Do you have your will drawn up? Are your children going to be taken care of when you're gone? I don't mean you're going to set them up in a multi-million dollar estate. That's not what I mean. But to have nothing leaves those decisions up to somebody else. You have that base covered? All of our insurance salesmen are like, oh, relax. <laughs> are you staying aware of the needs your older parents have? You're keeping up with them? You're checking in on them? Even if you don't live right next to them. <laughs> Some kids just got punched. I watched it happen. You just called your parent older. You fool. Um, it doesn't matter if they live right next to you. They can live hundreds of miles away. Have you followed up with your parents after this crazy storm that went through to make sure that they're okay? Are you checking in on mom and dad if they live close? Are you checking in on them to make sure they got what they need? Care for yours. That's, that's not because I get, you know, um, I get a little side deal for anybody who signs up for life insurance today after the service in the lobby. That's not, no. 
It is a biblical principle. It is a biblical principle. It's, it's found here in 1 Timothy 5. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. It can't be much more clear than that, guys. Are you caring for yours like Jesus did? I think the second thing we need to do is this, care for his. How many of you, if Jesus himself looked at you and said, please, take care of my mom, how many of you would have been like, absolutely? I mean, that's a privilege, right? Put your, I get to care for Jesus' mom after Jesus is gone. Oh, sign me up. I'm in. I would, I would be happy to do that. Well, guess what? You have the same opportunity every day. See, you go to, to Matthew 25, and Jesus is talking through this parable, and he says the, the Son of Man's going to come in all his glory, and the nations are going to be gathered before him, and he's going to separate the people into to sheep and to goats, and, and the king's going to say to the sheep, okay, bring, come here, and what I want you to do is I want you to take the inheritance I've prepared for you. I've been preparing this for you since the very creation of the world. This is yours, and I'm giving it to you. Why? Because when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was a stranger, you invited me in. I needed clothes, you took care of me. I was sick, you looked after me. I was in prison, you came to visit me. And the response of those people who are identified as sheep are like, okay, love the inheritance. Really excited about that. Got a question. When did we see you hungry and feed you? When did we see you thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in? When did we, when did we see you in need of clothing and clothe you? When did, were you in prison and we came and visited you? I mean, when, when did all of that happen? And Jesus says to them, I say to you, you did it to one of the least of these? Did it to me. So what is it that we need to do? We need to care for his. Now, I mentioned our retreat. And so, I'm going to give you a little report about something that I found, I found amazing. We wanted to take time to celebrate some of the things that God's done in the past year here at Uniontown Bible Church. We didn't have um, a couple, in case you're wondering. Um, in, case you, in case you're looking for something to give to Pastor Mark, he loves those giant sticky note things. They were all over the house. And we filled pages of those with reasons we have to celebrate. And you know what uh, was a recurring theme? When it comes to this, caring for his, you guys are killing it. Church, you, you are, are to be not just commended, but thanked. You, you are all over social media when things need to get done, and you're not just like, oh, I wish somebody would take care of this. Uh-uh, you're jumping in and doing it. I praise God for that. That's not, uh, that's not normal. That's, um, sounded weird. <laughs> it's an evidence of you taking seriously your responsibility to care for his. And you're doing it well. You're doing it well in giving people rides and providing meals and really praying for people and offering babysitting when it's needed and, and giving recommendations to make sure that people can get what they need and and offering cars to borrow, and showing up at the hospital to visit other people. And you are doing that. You are being the church. So my fear in saying that is we go, ah, good, all done. Winston Churchill's quote that I love the most, success 
is not final. So well done. Keep on. That quote goes on. I don't want to exegete a quote from Winston Churchill, but it quote goes on and says, success is not final and failure is not fatal. So maybe you haven't cared for his own. Well, then start now. Take it seriously. You see somebody in need of help, somebody in need of time, somebody in need of prayer, somebody who needs encouragement, somebody who just needs a smile, somebody who needs a cup of coffee in the middle of the week just to like forget about everything. Then do something about it. But I think, and now those two are the things we need to do, but I think the most profound um, takeaway from this saying on the cross, this is the one that, that in the middle of praying, God was like, there it is. It, it's this, not only does he command us to do things, to care for yours, to care for his, but he wants us to know something in this moment. He wants us to know he cares for you. Let me explain that for a second. Um, I typically tend to have a very short-sighted view of the depths of which God cares for me. I know for a fact, when I, when I think about how God loves me, I have a tendency to, to, to lean towards the fact that he cares about my sin. And so he was, he was willing and, and, and loved me enough and cared for me enough to, to come and die for my sin, and he cares about whether, I'm not, or whether or not I'm sinning. He, he cares for me that, but, but that's where it tends to end. In this moment, Jesus' care was enough that he would exert the energy that he needed to survive to make it a point to take care of his own. Some of you are wrestling with sickness. Um, so here's a little story. I was sick with the stomach flu a couple of weeks ago. In the midst of it, I prayed for God to heal me. Actually, to full honesty, I prayed for him to take me home a couple times, but um, um, I'm not ashamed to say this. It's just real. It felt pretend, because I felt stupid that I was asking God to heal me from the stomach flu. It felt insignificant, right? I mean, there's there's huge things going on in our world. There's huge things happening here in our church. People I know, people I love are being heart crushed. They're fighting cancer. They're, they're wondering what's next. And I'm there, I'm there lying on my bathroom floor crying for the hand of God to rescue me from the stomach flu. Guess what? He cared about that. He cares about that. He cares about every intimate detail. And he demonstrates the depths of his care in this moment on the cross. So how do you view God? It's really what it comes down to, even in my life particularly, is how do I view God? Do I view God as being so busy or too busy or, or too just preoccupied with the redemption of the world that he doesn't care about the stuff that's bringing me pain right now? That's not God. God cares for you. God cares for those things. Some of you are incredibly lonely. God cares about that. Some of you, <laughs> some of you just want the baby to stop crying long enough so you can get a nap. Hey, God cares about that. Some of you just want your teenager to like you. 
God cares about that. Some of you want to have the self-control that you need to, to not eat that second helping. God cares about that. Some of you just want the car to stop making that noise and for it not to cost money. God cares about that. I mean, that, that. That's what makes grace so amazing. It's not just redemption for our soul and then, hey, I'll see you on the other side. It's he walks alongside us in the moments of every day. We have to remember he doesn't just care about our soul. He cares about our heart. He cares for you. And so we cast every single care we have on him because his care for us is genuine and it's real. So as you hear the words of Christ as he hangs on the cross, mom, this is your new son. This is your mom. Understand, we have a responsibility to make sure we're taking care of our own. We have a responsibility to be taking care of his but we must be overwhelmed with the fact that in the midst of redeeming the world and all of mankind from their sin, in the midst of laying his life down in your place, he cares for the number of hairs on your head. He cares about you, your needs, and your pains. That's the God we have. And there's no better demonstration of that care than when he came and took your place on that cross. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your good care of us. I thank you for your grace. God, I thank you for <laughs> that moment this week where, where you reminded me of how much you cared about me. Uh, Lord, there, there are, I, I listed a few things, but there are, there are many other things happening in this room even right now. There's, there are people who are wrestling with with things that they may feel like are too insignificant to bring to you, but God, they're not. God, it's important that they run to you because you care for them. God, there's people here who are wrestling with loneliness, with sickness, who are wrestling with children and just trying to figure out how to be a good mommy or a good daddy. God, there's people in this room who, who just, they, they, they don't have the finances they need to buy a new car and the car is making that noise. Lord, I, I, I ask that in this moment that I mean, I do. I want all of their needs to be taken care of. But God, I pray in, in this moment they would remember that you have an ear that wants to hear their heart. God, I, I, you demonstrated that in the way you loved us by dying on the cross for us. Remind us that it goes further and deeper than that. God, we're, um, we're all just messed up. Lord, remind us how much you love us in the midst of our mess. It's in Jesus' good name I pray. Amen. Love you guys. Mm -hmm.